This episode is brought to you by the 35th Annual Meeting of the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine, working together for the global advancement of safe and healthy pregnancies. To find out more and register online, go to www.smfm.org. You're listening to the American Journal of Perinatology podcast. Hosted by Dr. Bill Goodnight and Dr. Chris Robinson, each month we take an in-depth look at a paper published in the American Journal of Perinatology. In this, the second part of our Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine roundtable discussion, Dr. George Sadi, Dr. Alan Tita, Dr. Chris Robinson, and myself, Bill Goodnight, discuss and analyze selected abstracts presented at this year's SMFM annual meeting. One of the late-breaking abstracts, always an excellent session to go to if our readers have not attended on Friday afternoons, was Skin Preparation and Cesarean Birth for the Prevention of Surgical Site Infection, a Prospective Randomized Clinical Trial. This was presented by Dr. Ivan Nagai at Montefiore Medical Center at the Einstein College of Medicine. I picked this to discuss on this roundtable. I really wanted your all opinions, too, about where we go from here. This was a relatively large study. They had close to 1,400 women randomized and included in the analysis were 1,394 women where they randomized them. These were women undergoing cesarean for non-emergency conditions, and they randomized them to one of three groups, either povidone, iodine, and alcohol skin prep, or a chlorhexidine alcohol skin prep, or a combination of both. Their primary outcome was surgical site infection within the first 30 days postpartum, and about 4.3% of the patients overall had the surgical site infection or had the primary outcome. And in the overall analysis, there were no differences between the groups in that primary outcome rate. However, they analyzed the data in secondary analysis according to BMI, and in women who were class 3 obese, not all the obese women, the class 3 obese women, there was a reduction in SSI in the combination group. This is an interesting study, but I wanted your opinion whether we should be changing now to a combination, or does this mean that we need to do a study? Because to me, it still seems like we don't have an answer to which is better. I know some randomized studies show povidone iodine better, some study chlorhexidine better. This one, to me, I read it as no difference. The other thing that was interesting to me, and we've seen this in some of our studies, and I'm sure you all have seen that, is that the rate of SSI is much, much lower than we typically think of. It was 4.3%, which was much lower than what they used in their sample size estimate. And this is very interesting to me because, I don't know, maybe it is because we changed the antibiotic prophylaxis thanks to the University of Alabama people when studies. So these are why I wanted this discuss because I wanted your opinion and then your thoughts on the rates of post-cesarean SSI. I think this is a very interesting study. I absolutely agree. And the first thought that comes to mind is the fact that this was a finding in a subgroup, sort of an interaction. And, you know, in principle, all, all interactions are uh, suspicious until proven correct. So <laughs> I think while it raises, you know, it, it's intriguing, uh, definitely it's something that I would like to see evaluated in a carefully designed studies looking at that specific subgroup to confirm that finding before changing practice based on that. 
and then I wonder what the investigators speculated would be the reason why a combination would work, assuming it did, the individual agents would not. I didn't get any speculation. I didn't get that. I actually was suspicious of the combination. I mean, do we even know that the combination is safe, is okay? That would have been mm -hmm. my thought when I was designing the study. I mean, can you combine these two and still because the iodine has to dry on the right. on the skin and the, the chlorhexidine is a different way. So that was been my question, whether it's okay to you combine them. That's definitely something that I would look forward to the paper to see how they justify this use. But again, a 75% reduction is just really too good. And I think it's a chance finding until proven otherwise. Do you think it makes a difference in the order in which you would apply? So the other confounder potentially here is which one would you apply first? And would you randomize individuals to either having the iodine applied before the chlorhexidine or vice versa in these cases? And the other thing I would also be very careful of is the surgical site infection is a much less common outcome than the surgical wound complication because certainly we see a much higher rate of surgical wound complications in patients with high BMIs than we see surgical site infections. And that's one of the challenges in doing these studies is the rate of surgical site infection is so much lower than wound complication, and thus you have to have a really good definition to discern between those two entities. I agree, but we've also seen a lower rate of even wound complications overall in the past five years or maybe even slightly longer. It's certainly not easy to enroll 1,400 women. So I think this seems like a really great effort and one that may need to be followed up on. One area that piqued my interest in this is, is there something unique about the class 3 obese patient and the bacteriology of that class 3 obese person that would make the combination of these agents be more protective? Is there a difference in the microbiome or the penetration of the IV antibiotics at that BMI that would make this be effective where either one is almost equally effective when your risk is pretty low? I think that's what they speculated in their presentation. Is it has to do with the bacterial load probably and the skin flora. Any other thoughts on skin preparation? Given the rates of cesarean deliveries, we have to find a way to decrease morbidity from the surgery, and I think skin preparation is one of the areas that are prime for research. Yeah, I would agree. I think the other thing is with class 3 obesity becoming as common as it is in the population, this is a really important study where we begin to really understand what is the optimal way of taking care of the obese patient and how is that different than our normal BMI population group that we take care of every day. In this group, did the authors comment on the type of incision they did in the class 3 obese patient? I wonder if that's another confounder. Yeah, it's not in the abstract, but if I remember correctly in the presentation, it was left up to the provider, so I don't think they commented specifically on that. Dr. Robinson has selected a couple of interesting abstracts. The first is the racial and ethnic differences in fetal growth, part of the NICHD fetal growth study. This was presented by Dr. Jermaine Buck-Lewis for the NICHD. So, Bill, I think this was a very interesting presentation. This was an oral concurrent four, which was the hypertension section, but addresses an issue that we deal with every day, and that is we take care of a very diverse population in the United States. And we recognize that our patients are different, but we apply the exact same standard of care when we look at their fetal growth. 
this study was really aimed at looking at a healthy group of women carrying a singleton. Now, of course, this study also does have a twin cohort as well, but the data presented here was from the singleton pregnancies, and they looked at these for a three-year period between 2010 and 2013, divided into an equal number of Caucasian, African-American, Hispanic, and Asian women. And in these groups, they did some interesting things to minimize the amount of ultrasound exposure that these women would have during their pregnancy by basically randomizing the women to having four different ultrasound schedules performed. And so the women would have their ultrasounds performed at differing gestational ages to give us enough data points along those curves to allow adequate fitting to have a good sense by race and ethnicity exactly what curves look like from the 10th to the 90th percentile as well as the average 50th percentile curve. And as expected, there are differences. And these differences in some cases began to show up as early as 16 weeks gestation. But in all of these women, there were statistical significances in their curves after 20 weeks gestation. And this is critically important because if we're using an average curve currently to make diagnoses of intrauterine growth restriction, which is going to obviously bring additional cost to the table and also anxiety for the patient, we need to have a sense of exactly what the expected growth for their fetus is to be. And I think one of the strengths of this study is that they specifically use self-described race and ethnicity. So the individuals coming into the study self-described themselves. They were then followed in a very tightly research-based ultrasound units from across the United States. This was, I believe, 10 centers involved in this. And we find that not only are the overall growth curves, which are shown in the abstract, different between each of these groups, Caucasian, African-American, Hispanic, and Asian, but even the individual biometry measures. For instance, they found that African-American fetuses tended to have longer humeri than the other groups, whereas Asians tend to have shorter femur lengths than Hispanics. I think this is something we deal with often in the ultrasound unit and hopefully is going to translate into a more specific definition for each race ethnic group for what intrauterine growth restriction should be defined as. From someone that spends a lot of time in the ultrasound unit and struggles with the 10th percentile EFW from a large population-based growth curve, I agree with your interpretation from this study and that I think oftentimes we, we're not comparing what should be a normal growth curve based on an ethnicity or a maternal body habitus from one patient to the other and may underscore or may miss poor growth in an overweight BMI patient and overcall growth restriction in using not appropriate curves for that patient. I'm very anxious to see the final results from this study and if we can find a predictive growth curves that we can use in a more appropriate individualized application. When I saw this, emphasize the need for those more individualized growth curves. I agree, Bill. And the thing that really surprised me is how early you begin to see these differences. So these differences would actually back up into the time period where we're looking at potential genetic markers as well. So I think it also may bring some more information to the table about how we interpret some of our genetic sonogram. And I think all those involved in assessing fetal growth are eagerly waiting for mm-hmm. the results of this cohort of this study. I mean, this is billed as the national growth standard, so we really needed this study. The only thing I say from looking and listening to the presentation is the differences, though, are really very, very tiny, very small. 
And if you really look at the biggest differences, it's between African Americans and all the others. So in a sense, I don't know how they're going to come up with the standards, but it seems to me that there may be only two different curves, African Americans and others. Or it could be something that will be individualized based on each patient. It could be some software or some application that will determine this for every pregnancy. I'm looking forward to to further analysis of this data set. No, I agree, George, and uh, I think this was really or is really very much uh, needed. I just had one question. Does anyone recall whether this information was available to clinicians or was this blinded? This was blinded information, so this was not okay. utilized in clinical decision making. Yeah, absolutely. So that even further strengthens the study and would be useful to see whether they had information on outcomes as well. Dr. Sadia, when I looked at this presentation, I was struck sort of by the same thing. That I agree there's statistically different, statistical differences in the means and medians of each of these measurements, but where I look is that fifth or tenth percentile that we call growth restriction and how much when we do a combined biometry are the growth curves going to separate out that much of a difference. And I bet when we do this we're going to find that we shift our diagnosis of growth restriction maybe more from the tenth to the fifth. I was speculating looking at this that that may remove some of the ethnicity-based differences in here when we're just looking at growth restriction. And then I think we couple that with trajectory, I think that may be an important aspect. The other really useful outcome of this cohort when we get the full results is this probably will be the first real fetal standard, not birth weight standard. Join us again next week as we conclude our roundtable discussion on highlights from the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine 2015 annual meeting, the Pregnancy Meeting. That was the American Journal of Perinatology podcast. Thank you for listening. To find out more and to read this month's highlighted paper, go to www.tima.com forward slash AJP. Or check out our Facebook page at facebook.com AMJ Perinatology. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us on iTunes and join us next month when we will discuss another paper from the pages of the American Journal of Perinatology. This episode was brought to you by the 35th Annual Meeting of the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine, working together for the global advancement of safe and healthy pregnancies. To find out more and register online, go to www.smfm.org.